Welcome to Buy, Grow, Sell, the podcast for entrepreneurs looking to acquire, grow, or exit a business, hosted by Simon Bedard. Hey there, it's Simon Bedard here. If you're brand new to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast, then welcome. It's great to have you on this journey. Since its launch, I've interviewed many entrepreneurs that have bought, grown, or sold a business. And in some cases, they've completed all three steps and started all over again. Our goal is to share the stories of business owners that have traveled at least part of this cycle so that we can learn from their experience. Whether it's the dizzying heights of success or the hard lessons learned through adversity, we get to the heart of what drives success and how to apply these lessons on your journey. So join us for the best insights, interviews, and inside information on how to buy, grow, and sell a business straight from the entrepreneurs who've lived and breathed it. Thanks for joining us on the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast. You know, I have interviewed a lot of guests on this show, and I learned something from every single story. Sometimes those lessons are about what to avoid. You know, lessons that were learned the hard way by entrepreneurs who had to fight their way through challenges. Of course, these lessons are immensely valuable for anybody willing to take them on board. In other cases, I hear stories of success that are so impressive that I can't help but get excited about the possibilities and how we can translate this success into the transactions and clients that we work for. Now, my next guest is Greg Alexander, who embodies this type of success. Now, Greg grew his professional services company from nothing to about 30 million in turnover in just 11 years. But what's more impressive is that he only had 30 staff and was churning out around 15 to 16 million in EBITDA. So when it came time to sell, Greg was able to achieve a sale price of $162 million, and this was paid all up front with no earn out. Now, if that doesn't get you excited, I really don't know what will, because seriously, anyone can learn from a guy like Greg Alexander, uh, especially from some of the lessons and tips he's going to be sharing in this episode of the podcast. Now, speaking of learning, Greg now teaches other founders his system for success. So if you're ready to shoot the lights out, then grab your notebook and be ready to take some notes from a true master of business. This is Greg Alexander. Greg, welcome to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast. It's good to be here, Simon. Thanks for having me. Oh, look, my absolute pleasure. Um, you know, as I just sort of mentioning off uh, off air a second ago, I'm really excited about having you on this show. It's, uh, you know, you, we're going to talk about uh, your firm, uh, SBI or Sales Benchmark Index, which was a management consulting firm, professional services firm, which, you know, as you know, we run a professional services firm in Exit Advisory Group. So to hear another entrepreneur's story who's kind of been down a at least a similar path, um, and and made a great success of it is is very exciting to me, and I know many of our audience will be looking forward to hearing your story as well. I don't want to jump too far ahead here because many of our guests may not have heard you. Um, Greg, would you mind maybe just kicking off and give us a little bit of your background and what led you to starting SBI? Okay, very good. So again, my name is Greg Alexander. I was uh, born and raised in Boston, Massachusetts. I graduated the University of Massachusetts, and upon graduation, I took a, a job with a tech company called EMC. When I joined EMC, it was a very young firm. I got lucky. I went to work for the right firm at the right time, and through the 90s, we grew like crazy, and I rose up through the sales ranks. 
And then after the dot-com bubble burst and, you know, the world kind of reconfigured itself, I went back and got my MBA from Georgia Tech in Atlanta, Georgia. And it was there that we developed the idea for this consulting firm called Sales Benchmark Index, or more easily said, SBI. And the idea was pretty simple. It was to apply the science of benchmarking to the art of sales, which this was back in 2006 when the world was just discovering the cloud and data analytics and AI and big data, et cetera. So we timed that correctly. I had that firm for 11 years. I sold it at the end of 2017. And that's taken me to what I'm doing now, which is two things. So first is I'm the founder of a mastermind community called Collective 54. And it's a mastermind community dedicated to uh, founders of boutique professional services firms. So think uh, consultants, IT service providers, marketing agencies, people that kind of market and sell their expertise. Um, and then secondly, I am the chief investment officer for my, for my family office, which is called Capital 54. And there I'm investing the proceeds harvested from EMC and the sale of SBI directly into promising boutique professional services firms. So that's a little bit about me. Oh, very cool. Very cool. And thanks for sharing that. So um, I, I want to pick on something in a second because you mentioned, talked about timing, and, and I, I'm really curious about this concept of, you know, when we come to market and what we're sort of delivering in the broader environment. But um, can, can you tell us a little bit more about SBI before we get to that? So, you know, sales benchmarking, what, what do you mean by that? Yeah. So a lot of our clients were trying to figure out how they could grow their revenue in particular faster than the industry and their direct competitors. And the types of industries we served, for example, uh, the software industry, um, private equity, et cetera, they, they were spending a lot of money on their sales team. Sometimes it was 20, 30, even 40% of top line revenue. So optimizing that spend, getting uh, more return per dollar was something that was top of mind. So the things that we did for them is we figured out um, which products they should sell to which customers, to which channels. Uh, we figured out their how much sales capacity they should have in terms of how many salespeople, um, how to deploy them in, in, into sales territories, how to pay them and give them quotas, how to train them, all that kind of stuff. So it was a, a management consulting business at its core, meaning it was you know arms and legs, as you might think, and it was mostly projects. But our specialty was on business-to-business -business sales effectiveness. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, it's, I guess it's out of my, in my experience, you know, and I've seen a lot of professional services firms over the years, I, I found so many of them end up starting their business or the, the founder starts the business, usually because they're good at something, right? You know, maybe they're, they're whether it's they're an architect or they're uh, whatever it might be, they're, they're sort of good at something and then they decide at some point for whatever reason to go out on their own and they start a firm because they're good at that particular service. And, and I think, you know, and, and I'm going to keep things really super simple here, but, you know, when I look at most firms, you know, you've got how do you generate your revenue, which is your marketing and the entire sales function. And then you've got to deliver on that, that sale and, and obviously do what you were meant to do to get paid, right? And yeah, there's finance, legal, and all this sort of stuff that sits around it. But generating sales, delivering on sales are these sort of two core buckets that I see so many businesses, um, well, all businesses need to do. But I just find so many consulting firms or professional service firms are great at that delivery piece because that's what they're good at and have absolutely no idea about sales and marketing. And so, and I, and I think that's such a key ele element as to why many of them perhaps don't scale to where they need to go. 
Um, and so, yeah, fa- so I love what you were doing with SBI. I mean, I think it just, it clearly complements that missing gap for so many people out there. You know, if I could add to that, yeah, at Collective 54, we believe in the life cycle of a professional services firm. In our opinion, it's about 15 years in total, cradle to grave. And there's three stages, five years in each stage. The first stage is grow. The second stage is scale. And the third stage is exit. And what you just said there usually happens when somebody's leaving the growth stage and entering the scale stage. And what happens there is that, like you said, somebody's really good at something or maybe a group of a a team and they hang their shingle and they grow for a period of time, primarily through their own personal network. They generate referrals and word of mouth and that's good enough in the early days and it gets them to a certain revenue level. Uh, it starts to pay the bills. It makes them feel comfortable that they don't have to go to work for a corporation and take a real job and they can kind of do this thing. But then growth plateaus because at some point, you know, your personal network is finite by definition. So now you have to expand beyond your personal network and you have to be able to attract clients and people who don't know you and people who might not even be in the, ser- in the market for your service. So there you have to build a proper commercial sales and marketing engine that's repeatable. And that's a big step to go from that growth stage to the scale stage. And that's the kind of thing that we help boutiques with. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. So I come back to my question about timing, because, you know, I think history is sort of littered with, with examples of really great ideas that perhaps came to market just at the wrong time. Um, I, I'm just curious to sort of unpack that with you a little bit. You know, you mentioned the timing of what you were doing. Can you just talk us through your perspective around that and, and how yeah. it's impacted your business? So I'm going to give you three timing examples. And it's going to make the point that luck plays a huge role in everybody's success. And I'm, I might be one of the luckiest guys you ever met. And after you hear these three examples, you'll know why. So the first example was I went, for, I went to work for EMC, a data storage company, three years before the internet launched. We made the, the world's greatest data storage device at a time when the amount of information being generated exploded. So talk about being in the right place at the right time. I mean, it was like walking around with a bucket catching rain that was falling from the sky. So the, <laughs> and the timing there was perfect. And I would love to tell you that that was some master plan, but I was a recent graduate from university and I got plucked off the campus and just got lucky, right? So that was the first thing. But what I learned from that was how important timing is. So the second time when I started SBI, so this would be the next journey in my career, I gave this some thought. And I said to myself, okay, so... The software industry is a growth industry of our nation. I'm in the United States, and it will be for the next 10 to 20 years. And the business model of the software industry is is two big expenses. There's the engineering expense to build the product, and then there's the sales expense to sell the product. So anybody that's doing something in those two areas is going to do well. Well, I I quickly removed engineering because I'm not an engineer and I can't code. But I, had, I was born and raised in a, in a fantastic sales organization, and I had some knowledge there. So I drew a circle around that. And then I said to myself, working backwards from the problem, what is the problem? And the problem was there was no data at the time. You know, if I could ask you, how's your sales force doing? And you might say it's doing pretty good, and it was a gut instinct. You know, you were comparing yourself to yourself over time. But then I would say, well, put yourself in the context of your competitors in your industry, externally how you're doing, and nobody knew. They couldn't answer the question. So we went to work on solving that problem because everybody wanted to know that. 
And any improvement there, because the spend was so large, would fall directly to the bottom line and make a company infinitely more profitable and therefore more valuable. So we timed that because we, we were expecting the software industry to grow exponentially as we moved to the cloud. And that was going to be the wind in our sails, so to speak, to ride the wave here. So that was the second example. And what I'm doing right now is the third example and probably my most deliberate and intentional attempt is that I believe that COVID, and we started in 2020, has changed the world forever. I mean, here you, here you and I are talking halfway around the world with each other. And there's this industry called the membership community or mastermind business. And there's ex several examples of successful firms in that space. For example, you might have heard of YPO or Vistage or EO. And all these companies are 75 years old. And they're still based on the local geographic chapter. They're not digital. And I said, well, it's time for digital transformation to hit that industry. And we can, we can create a, a better version of that by leveraging digital tools and doing away with the geographic limitations and make this truly a, a digital empowered global community. And that's what we're doing at Collective 54. And we're growing very, very quickly because of that one thesis, that that's a great business, membership businesses, community businesses. However, it can be even better if we take it out of a legacy 75-year-old structure and put it online. And that's basically what we're doing. Yeah, brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. It's, uh, and, I, and I know exactly what you mean. I think we've all been around long enough to, uh, to see those type of mastermind groups. And you're right, they, they are a very effective model. And there's a lot to be learned from your peers. And there's a lot to be learned from working in a group and having some structure around it. So, you, you know, but you're right. I mean, th these days we all expect to be online, right? Um, yeah. and, and it's funny, I've, I've found over the last sort of, well, even last year or so, how we're almost developing this additional language, right, around whether it be some of the little glitchy tech things that we now deal with on a daily basis that, that were kind of an anomaly in the past. And yeah, it's just this, this evolution that's happened so quick. It's almost a revolution, right? Like it's, it's not been a slow thing. It just came overnight. So, yeah. um, yeah, it's been a fascinating journey. And the pandemic has changed us forever. I mean, it, it, before the pandemic, which I know seems like a million years ago, but there was a belief that if you worked from home, you wouldn't be as productive. But now the data's in and you're actually more productive, right? So the, the things that were standing in the way of these mastermind communities going online and becoming digital are now gone. So timing again, right? So, and another stroke of luck. I mean, I hate to say the pandemic was a lucky break because it was a horrible thing. But in the, in the context of business, that was the enabler. That was the turning point for that industry to be digitally disrupted. Yeah, yeah. I, look, and I agree with you about the pandemic. I mean, I don't, I don't uh, you know, I think we can all acknowledge the hardships that it's caused. And, you know, geez, we went out for dinner the other night and I was looking around at all the restaurants that have closed down. I, you know, I've never been one who's been interested in hospitality businesses because I could never see me running one. And, you know, it's just not the sort of business I'm interested in. But, geez, I feel for the families, you know, these people that have lost those, lost their earnings, lost their family business. It's, um, it is terrible. I am interested, though, you know, it, the flip side of that, of course, is businesses like yours, and, and I've seen plenty of others, you know, people in the e-com space, of course, um, is another great example where their business has really accelerated um, through this period. And, you know, we've seen some massive growth. We've seen, um, as you said, I think, you know, you, there's been a fundamental shift in society because of this. Um, 
you know, is there is there other ways? I mean, other than joining groups like Collective Fifty Four to to sort of help business owners on their journey, are there other ways that you see, particularly professional services companies, being able to take advantage of the changes that have happened? Oh yeah, I mean, I'll give you some real examples. And this, I just had this call with somebody today. So I spoke to a consultant today who lives in Costa Rica, and he moved to Costa Rica from Austin, Texas. And I said to him, what are you doing in Costa Rica? And why are you living in Costa Rica? There's no clients in Costa Rica. And he's like, it doesn't matter anymore. You know, I, I can live here and live my life the way I want to live and still serve my clients. And he goes, and Greg, here's the best thing about it. He used to have to be on site with the client. So every project came with a travel budget. It was typically around 15% of the project fee. So let's say you charge $100,000 for a project or whatever. The customer's got to eat another 15K for travel expenses. Well, now they don't. And what they're doing, instead of pocketing those travel dollars, they're actually spending more on consulting. So he, he now no longer has to suffer the life of a consultant where he left on Sunday night and came home Thursday night. And he's been able to move to a destination that's a dream destination for him. So his quality of life went up and his business is going up because the clients are spending more with him because they don't have to waste money on inefficient dollars like plane tickets and hotel rooms. So it's it's transforming the entire professional services industry. Here's another example. I have a, an accounting member and they tech automated and offshored all their labor. So that they, they were now able to bring fractional CFO services that were only affordable to mid-sized companies. And they're now able to bring them to small companies because they were able to lower their costs to sell through technology and leveraging a global workforce to lower their price point. And when they lowered their price point, their demand exploded. So those are two examples of how this new you know, global world we're living in is, uh, is changing the professional services industry in remarkable and forever ways. Yeah, no, that's that's really interesting, and I, and I think that whole issue of offshoring. I mean, gosh, we could do an entire another show on that. It's um, it's such an interesting topic, and I think I think the concept that you couldn't do it because of whether it be language barriers or time differences and all that sort of stuff. I think I think like the uh, video conferencing question, a lot of those problems have melted away and melted away quite quickly. So, um, so yeah, it's been an interesting one. Um, let me let me wind back a little bit here to SBI because uh, you know I you obviously sold out of that business and and did so very successfully and I'd I'd love to kind of unpack your journey a little bit through SBI and um, you know you talked about three uh, stages for professional services companies a moment ago and I I imagine that you know your journey probably followed something like that so can you just talk us through what it looked like I mean you you started off in two thousand and six yeah tell us about the journey. Sure. Yeah. So much like many of your listeners, I would imagine, I started in 2006 and every two weeks I was reminded how dumb I was and I was, <laughs> I was learning on the job. And, and during that time period, we were stumbling through things like, you know, who really is our ideal client? You know, what problems are they having that we're uniquely qualified to serve? Um, what might they be willing to pay for our services? You know, we were figuring out all of these things. How should we deliver those services? Should everything be a custom snowflake type project or is there, could there be some standardization? So we were working through all of those things. We were hiring our first set of employees. We made several hiring mistakes. We learned, you know, who we should be hiring. We started to establish a culture. Um, and all that happened in kind of like the first, I'd say, five years or so. 
Then in the second five years, things took off and we were dealing with an entirely different set of challenges and they were caused primarily by rapid growth. Um, I think during that time period, the firm went up like eight times or something like that. It was, it was a straight curve. Um, and the biggest challenge there and the biggest change amongst many was we were gaining a reputation. So we were attracting a more sophisticated client, big brand name clients with huge projects. So their expectations for what quality service really was, we had to rise to that occasion. And so we started doing things like training our employees differently, um, hiring a different type of person, scoping our work differently, using different set of tools, et cetera. And I'd call that kind of the scale stage. Because what happens during that time period is eventually the 70-hour work week has to end. You know, you just you can't get there anymore through brute force. You can in the early days, but at a certain size, you just run into a wall. So you got to go through the scale stage. And then our exit stage was quick. Um, we, we sold the company in a year, which was unusual. Um, it usually takes much longer than that, but we got lucky there in the sense that we ended up selling the private equity. And private equity was about a third to 50% of our client base. So because we had been serving them, we knew a lot about what they were looking for. And several of them had said to us, hey, Greg, if you ever decide to sell the firm, you should give us a call. We would be interested, right? So that, that, that truncated a lot of the process. And uh, so we, we, we went through an exit process that lasted, the full process was about nine months, but it was like three months of getting ready ahead of time. So it, it took about a year to go through that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and frankly, look, I, I find that's, you know, that's quite common. I'm always sort of saying to our clients when they're, they're going, well, when they're, they're telling us they're ready to start a sale process, I always say to them, give us a year. <laughs> it, yeah. it might happen a little bit quicker. It might happen a little bit longer. But you just, if you're not planning for at least a year in your head, you're probably doing yourself a disservice. So. So come back to that first five years. Um, did you start the company with any other business partners or were you on your own? No, I had two co-founders. Um, one of them was my classmate at Georgia Tech where we developed the idea. And then we launched in about six months later when we got a little traction. One of my old workmates from my time at EMC joined us. And uh, we were kind of the three musketeers. And the way we kind of divided up the labor, so to speak, is I was the, the rainmaker. I brought in the clients. Um, one of my co-founders would deliver the work um, when it was um, ready to be delivered. And then the other co-founder was working on new service offerings so that we could expand kind of, you know, what we were doing and who we were serving. And then over time, as we grew, kind of like functional organizations were stood up on those those three pillars, if you will. And then, of course, we added in you know, the back office, which we largely outsourced, you know, finance, IT, legal, HR, that kind of thing. But yeah, that's how, that's how we got off the ground with those three people. Yeah, interesting. And, and from how long did it take to go from sort of standing still, you know, starting point to the point where you were actually generating enough revenue and at least covering bills and, you know, not going backwards? <laughs> yeah. So we, we started, we were cash flow positive, I'd say within the first 90 days. I mean, that's the wonderful thing about consulting companies is, you know, they're, they're not capital intensive, they're inexpensive to run, you know, so you can get cash flow positive. But I will say, um, we, the three of us did not take a paycheck for three years. And we, we wanted to put all the money back into the business because we had decided from inception 
that we weren't interested in building a lifestyle business. We decided to go on this journey together as partners in every sense of the word, because we wanted to build an asset that somebody else may want to buy and have a wealth creating generational moment. So we, we were prudent. We went without a lot and you know, it was painful to do that, but luckily it worked out for us. Yeah. And you know, this idea of actually, um, foregoing immediate kind of consumption and all the sort of benefits, it's, you know, it's this constant reminder, right? Like if you want to build something amazing, you've got to invest in it. <laughs> and yep. it's, you know, there's uh, very rarely anyway, is there any such thing as an overnight success? So it's, um, no, it's, it's, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm taking comfort here that my story somewhat resembles yours still. So, <laughs> yeah. um, no, that's cool. And so, and do you remember, do you remember your first employee after the three of you? Oh, for sure. He's the CEO of the firm now. Yeah, right. He took over for me when I, when I sold it. His name is Matt Shares. Um, and he was our first employee, although we, we were at the time we were calling ourselves employee one, two, and three. So technically he was employee four. And I'll never forget the moment when we decided to hire him. The, we were on a snowmobiling trip in Colorado and uh, we were driving around in these big machines and it was freezing cold. And, and we went inside for a beer and, uh, and we had this chance to hire this remarkable person and he is a remarkable person, but he he didn't he needed money. I mean he had he had to he had to support his family, and we had to pay him. And we had a heated debate, and it was it was tough to agree to pay an employee before we were paying ourselves. But that was a a moment of truth for us. You know, we were tested to see is this real, and and we had the courage to do it. I give my partners a lot of credit, and and that individual coming into the firm changed the firm a lot. Yeah, that's I I can relate to that. It's um. You know, I think it can be a bit of a scary step putting on those first people, and it's. But certainly, in my experience, every time we've put on somebody, and okay, we've had one or two little sort of misses where they've not been the, quite the right fit. But in in most cases, it's not. In most cases, it's been a really good fit, and invariably, when we put the right person in, good things happen. You know, I've, I've, I don't think we've ever looked back and gone, "Geez, that person was amazing," but I regret hiring them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I agree. And that's what happened with us. In fact, what happened was, is that he had so much success that people from his previous company saw the success and decided to join him. So he was a, a force multiplier for us. You know, his arrival and a band of Indians followed him into the firm after that. And it, and it worked out really well. That accelerated our scale. Yeah, nice, nice. Can you talk to me about your experience with SBI and I guess any any experience generally, but I've found with so many of the clients we've worked with that there there seems to be these kind of natural barriers or ceilings, hurdles, whatever you like to call them, when people are on this growth journey. And, and, and I think people sort of define them slightly differently, but probably one common denominator there is, is often revenue. Um, you know, like, for, and I'll give you an example, you know, I've had some particularly professional services firms say, you know, hey, we had to push really, really hard to get to one to two million in revenue. And then once we got past that, there was this spurt of growth. And, you know, I guess, as I say, those barriers might be different for different firms and different industries. But did you experience anything like that? And can you kind of give us any sort of insights into them? We did, for sure. And my opinion is it's not money related, it's time related. And what I mean by that is I think every founder is a remarkable person who tends to produce a lot. But again, 
there's only so many hours in the week. So even as optimized and productive you are as a founder, there's only one of you. I mean, you're not going to work Christmas Day. You can't work 24 hours a day. There's just a finite amount of hours. And what happens is, is that in the early days, you know, you work a ton and then you, and then you get to a certain revenue amount. And then you say, want to go beyond that. And then you get smarter in how you work. And then that's an optimization exercise on yourself. But at some point, you need to replicate yourself and others. And that's the big inflection, inflection point. Can other people in the firm do what you can do as well as you can do it? And there's a lot of founders that can't make that transition. Their, their identity is wrapped up in the firm and they want to be the hero. And instead of hiring equals that can do what they can do as good as they can do it, they hire a bunch of helpers. And then the founder tries to grow up and be the hero with 50 helpers running around, or these days, the hero with a bunch of bots. And that doesn't work because those people can't do what you can do as well as you can do it. So therefore, you can't continuously delegate because as, as the firm is growing, the founder is growing in his or her capability, and he's moving up the value stack, so to speak. So what he spends an hour on today, a year from now, he won't spend an hour on that because it's no longer value, valuable. Somebody else can do it. He needs to be on the frontier pursuing the long-term vision. And if the founder suffers from under-delegation, he or she kills themselves because they can't scale. So that, that is the thing. And, and I, don't, I don't think it's a dollar amount. It's a time thing. Now, when on the calendar does that happen, I think is situational. But eventually, the founder or co-founders are tapped out and they've got to figure out the delegation. Yeah. Yes. Great, great bit of wisdom there. It's, um, you know, I know one of the things that we talk a lot about succession, you know, once again, you know, Exit Advisory Group, right, is the, is the firm, our core business. But it's, you know, we get a lot of people, particularly in the professional services sector, that come to us and say, how do we, how do we make this shift, right? Like, how do we, you know, and I've seen it, whether it's architects, engineers, even accountants, whatever it might be, they've got, whether it's just themselves or like in your case, you had a couple of partners who they're all top performers, all experts in what they're doing. But so often I hear people say, how do we bring people up to this, what I will broadly call the sort of principal level, you know, where they can kind of punch the way we punch, they can deliver the way we deliver or make it rain, do those core functions. And, and of course, what a lot of them miss then too is even if they find somebody they can bring up to principal level, they need to backfill that for that person. And that's so right. this, this idea of succession, right, it's not just about, right. yeah, yeah, that's right, it's never any, it just keeps going, 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 and the bigger you get, the, the bigger that, that issue gets. So. Do, do you have any sort of insights, wisdom, get tips on, on things that people can think about as they're, they're looking at that problem? Yeah, I, I have a few. So the first thing I would advise your listeners to is that in the U.S., there's 1.5 million professional services firms. And out of that, 4,116 of them have reached scale. Scale defined as more than 250 people, okay? That's one quarter of 1%, okay? I mean, it's a staggering number. When you look at that one quarter of 1% and you ask yourself the question, what are they doing differently than the rest of us? And there's a few things they do differently. First is they have a talent pipeline. And it's based on the old pyramid where you hire in juniors and over time through deliberate employee development, 
you move them up the ladder, so to speak. It's called the upper out pyramid. And you either move up the organization or you move out of the organization. What you can't do is stay still because you're clogging the supply chain. There's someone coming in behind you, right? So they have this masterful grow your own upper out pyramid in place. So I suggest anyone in professional services who wants to scale, they have to have that version. They have to have their version of that. The mistake they try to get to is they say, well, boy, that takes too long. But to your point, you know, I argue that it takes a decade to become an overnight success. So, (laughs) right. So what really is too long? Because the alternative is to be, is to hire mercenaries, which are people that are already high up the pyramid and you buy them and you bring them in. The problem with that is if you entice those people with compensation, eventually they're going to leave you as well because they're for sale. Another firm, a bigger firm, is going to come to them and say, come do what you're doing for for your firm over here and I'll pay you 50% more. So then those firms have high turnover and and you can't scale when that's the case. So putting in this upper out pyramid and a talent supply chain is, is priority number one. Priority number two is to truly understand how you do what you do. Because if you're going to have this talent pipeline, that means you've got to develop your people. So by understanding your job at the task level and separating each task into two buckets, things that can be taught and things that that rely on God-given talent. And there's some things that rely on God-given talent that you can't teach and for those items, you're going to hire to that spec. Can you give us an example of, of those God-given talents? I can, I can tell with you right now. So you're a personable guy. Within five minutes, you're likable. You can't teach that. It's just who you are. It's in your DNA. And we probably have met people that within five minutes, they're like a cold fish. You just can't warm up to them, right? So... <laughs> And that's is no matter how hard you want to teach them, you know, you're just not going to be able to teach it. So that's a God-given ability. Now, and there's a few of those. However, for the most part, we, we all learn things. I mean, that's the great thing about being human. The things I know today, I didn't know five years ago. I learned them. Someone taught me how to do them. So if I understand the job, the work to be done at the task level, and I know it's teachable, then I can come up with a employee development program and actually teach those skills. And if I do those two things, if I lay the the task analysis, if you will, on top of the talent pipeline, I now go from knowing what to do, the upper out pyramid, to how to do it, which is the task analysis. So that would be my advice. Yeah, very good. Very good. It's, um, you know, I think we all keep hearing so much about systemizing your business and, uh it's um, it's funny. I, I we're talking systems and processes actually with a client, and, they, and the client turned to me and said, "Simon, what what's the difference in your head between the, the difference between a system and a process?" And I, I guess the best way I had of explaining it was that it's a little bit like baking a cake. You know, you can look at the ingredients of a cake, and that's part of it. But if you don't have the method and how to use those ingredients and when to apply them, I guarantee you, you're going to produce something pretty ugly. And so the system brings it all together. Yeah, yeah. that's a really good metaphor, right? I mean, I, I could give you a list of ingredients and say, bake the cake. But if I don't tell you that you need a, a three quarters of sugar and you know five quarters of vanilla, put the oven at 350 degrees, I've got no system to turn those ingredients into the cake. Yeah, 
Yeah, exactly right. And so it's it's interesting. I think I think we're all it's almost this kind of catchphrase now. People are saying you got to systemize, you got to systemize, but I do think there's a disconnect between all of the rhetoric that we hear out there from all the so-called gurus and and the actual business owners who are kind of trying to do everything and also do this thing they call systemize their business. And so, I mean, uh, do do you have any sort of thoughts or suggestions or how did you guys go about it? So what I would say there is that scaling a boutique professional services firm is too much work for one person. Yeah. It just is, right? So to do this, you've got to think long and hard about division of labor. And you almost think about your firm as a value chain, not to get academic on you, but you know your client is paying you X amount of money to solve a problem. And then if you work backwards from that, what are all the things you're going to do, the activities you're going to engage in that deliver that value to the client? And if you can segment those activities out, you now got logical division of labor. So you're not asking one person to be great at five things. You're asking maybe a team of five each to be good at one thing. That's the system systemization of the business, in my view. And I think sometimes, again, back to the hero firm, that concept, you know, uh, founders are, you know, supremely confident in their ability and they think they can do everything. And the, case, the, the, the reality is they can for a while. But then the law of numbers kicks in. Again, there's only so many hours in a day. So division of labor becomes the essential scaling activity. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I might add one little thing I found, not just with my clients, but even with myself, you know, running and building a business. I, th- I think one of the things, you know, we've all heard this expression that if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life, right? And so I keep saying to my clients, like, what, what part of what you do do you love the most, right? And which parts do you hate? What parts really suck? Because that's yeah. the stuff you need to give to someone else, right? <laughs> um, you know, not only will you grow, you actually might have more fun. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny. Um, I, I recently was, somebody shared that with me recently, and I never really thought about it. And I said, well, how do you know? So I started keeping a journal. And as my day evolves, I, I make a note of the things that give me energy and the things that detract energy. Like I find this conversation very engaging, right? So when we get off the call, I'll write that down, you know, interviewing on podcasts was something I enjoy doing. So the next time I get a request like this, I'll accept it because it gives me energy. Earlier in the day, I was going through the financial statements with my accountant and, you know, I absolutely hated every minute of it. (laughs) (laughs) No offense to the accountant. He's a, they're a lovely person. (laughs) So that's an activity that that's one of my team members should do. Someone who enjoys that is better at that, et cetera. Again, back to the division of labor, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So let's go back to SBI for a second. And and so, you know, you've started this firm with a couple of buddies from college. You've obviously got some pretty quick success here. You're starting to grow. You hit this scale phase. I, I could see that you've in the business for, I don't know, roughly, let's call it 12 years. At what point in that journey, did you guys start having this conversation of, you know, I know you were building to building build a saleable asset, but did you, when did you start having discussions about exit? Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating story because I never thought that we would be able to sell the business to a private equity investor. Up until that point, that was very rare. And the reason why that was rare is most private equity people buy companies with debt. And Professional services business don't have any assets, so banks aren't willing to loan. But what ended up happening is the world of private debt emerged. And private equity firms were raising money. They weren't banks. 
And they were willing to lend into these situations for higher interest rates. So that opened up a whole new pool of buyers. Okay. So, and many of these private equity investors were our clients. They would hire us to go to work with their portfolio companies. So one of my partners who was responsible for our private equity practice over dinner one night and said, hey, I keep getting asked the question, when are you guys going to go to market? There's an opportunity here to take some chips off the table. And I said, well, tell me about it and all that. And, and I decided not to do it because I didn't want the disruption. Then what happened, but that was the seed got planted in my brain. <laughs> yeah. Then what happened was we tried to buy a, a company in our space, adjacent to our space. And we bid. And we bid through the investment banker. And the banker called me and said, hey, you guys lost. And you lost to XYZ company. And I said, how far off were we? And we bid like, I think it was like $24 million. And the winning bid was $67 million. Wow. I mean, I wasn't even close. Yeah. So I said, I said to the banker, if you can get $67 million for that firm, what could you get for mine? Right? <laughs> and, he, and he threw out a number of $150 million. And I said, okay, let's giddy up and let's give this a shot. Now, I still didn't think, because as you know, a lot of deals, you go to market and they don't close, right? I had never been through diligence. I didn't even know what diligence was. My personal life was interwoven with the company's finances. I mean, we, we were a mess in every way, shape. I didn't have audited financials, nothing, nothing that you ever need. But this banker was willing to do the work. So God, God bless him. Uh, we hired him. And... He went to work and we did the QOE and he cleaned up all the stuff and did the SIM and got us out there. And again, back to timing, maybe this is my fourth example of being lucky. You know, there was a, there was this massive amount of money sitting in these private equity firms and there wasn't a lot of deals. There was more, more money than there was companies to buy. And so and, we had all. And if I can if I can just jump on that for a second, because it's a question I get a lot from business owners thinking of selling is they'll always say, Simon, when, when's the best time for us to sell? And, and I'm always like, man, that's simple. The best time to sell is when there's more buyers than there are sellers. It's, right. it's a supply-demand, right? Like if there's more, lots of money out there looking for a home, well, whether you're kind of 100% ready or not is almost irrelevant. You need to think about exactly right. yeah, the market. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and it's still, I mean, here it is five years later, and it's probably even a better time to sell now than it was then, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, uh, it's a seller's market for sure. So anyway, so we, we go through that process and we start getting indications of interest. And then we progress to the LOI. We go through the diligence and we ended up closing. So that's kind of how it happened. So the two things that got me thinking about it was my partner, who I trusted, who was managing the private equity group, was suggesting exactly your point. Like the odds are in our favor right now. And then I actually saw one of my competitors get taken out for a number that blew me away and that pushed me into the market. Yeah, really, really interesting. So so let's get a sense of context here. So when all this sort of started unfolding, can you give us an idea of how big the firm was in terms of, say, revenue employees, all that sort of stuff? Yeah. So we were doing $30 million in revenue. We had $16 million in EBITDA, but we only had 30 employees. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So we, and, and this was the thing that got us, we ended up selling the firm for $162 million. 
which for a 30-person consulting firm is a huge number. In fact, my banker, I have no way of validating this, but my banker said it's still the, the largest exit of its kind that, that's ever happened. Um, so why did that happen? Well, the reason why that happened is we were so incredibly profitable. And the PE shop wanted that $16 million in EBITDA. And the other thing that, that separated us, I think, and maybe probably the most unique thing about the deal, is that I told the banker that I was only willing to sell if I got all the money up front with no earnout. Nice. Yeah. And he basically said, that's impossible. You know, it's never going to happen, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and, and I said, you're probably right. Um, but he was able to, he was able to pull that off. And I left the day of closing and, and uh, didn't have to stick around for the earnout. And, and that was a unique thing. And the reason, and the reason why I brought that up is that the management team that was sticking around, particularly this one individual, Matt Shares, was so good because we had done such a great job with this talent supply chain concept. And he was employee four and made it all the way up through the ranks to CEO and, and was still a young man. He was in his early 40s. So that the investors said, boy, this guy's got a lot of runway in front of him. We, we had only scratched the surface in terms of the addressable market. So there was a huge market opportunity, a great management team, phenomenal growth in, in financials and margins that we were very attractive. So that, that's what ended up happening. Yeah, that's uh, brilliant. Congratulations. I mean, you know, what an, uh, what an amazing journey. It's, um, you know, 10 times, 10 times EBITDA. And uh, it, it's funny, I, um, one of the things we're seeing, we're representing a number of SaaS companies at the moment. And, um, and you know, I, I think, and I've said this on this show many times, that you know, there's lots of different ways people might value a company, but, but the most common is still a multiple of their adjusted EBITDA. Um, however, we are seeing this shift with a lot of software companies now starting to sell on multiples of recurring revenue. Yeah. And, and sure, there are lots of ways to slice and dice that. I've, I've seen SaaS companies that, you know, 50% of their revenue is recurring, 50% of it is kind of consulting that kind of gets people into the SaaS model. And so, right. you know, they get this multiple of, of revenue. Maybe it's a different multiple for the different portions or different buckets of revenue, but it's still multiples of revenue. And I've, I found this really fascinating because it drives this question for me around how does the buyer actually take that business and start to get real returns on it? Because, you know, if you didn't fundamentally scale that very quickly, man, like it's just this asset that you've paid a lot of money for. And so I don't know if you've got any thoughts or insights around that. I mean, or whether that went through your head at the time, but it's, I, I just find it fascinating. So when I sold, that very rarely happened, but it's happening all the time now. In fact, one of the reasons why I decided to get back into business and go into the mastermind community space in particular is because these firms trade on a multiple of revenue. In fact, there was one called Chief, um, which is a membership community for female executives. They just sold for 17.5 times revenue. Oh, my goodness. Right. <laughs> which is a, just an absolutely crazy number, right? So what's happening in the SaaS space in particular is there, because there's so much capital and capital formation has been strong for so long that investors are willing to deal with losses for many, many, many years. So they pay up like that and they're willing to hang in there while these companies run in the red for a long time because they know that at any given time, they can switch their focus from revenue to profitability. And because it's recurring revenue, and particularly in SaaS, 
with which is very high, very sticky with very high switching costs, you know, they could generate an enormous amount of profit right away if they wanted to. Um, I personally think we're on the cusp of that change coming because I think what happens in a rising interest rate environment is people start focusing on how much debt's on a balance sheet. You know, can they service the debt? Um, maybe profitability is more important than revenue growth. You know, people start thinking about those things. So it may, the pendulum might swing backwards here a little bit towards EBITDA, but I don't know though, because there's so much money out there that, and there's so much competition. Yeah. They might, uh, they might keep going with it. Yeah. It's fascinating. I mean, I, I, once again, you talk about interest rates, and I think you know the Fed's obviously in the, in the papers a lot at the moment. Our Reserve Bank just literally put up interest rates two days ago, um, not by much. I mean, it was a quarter of a basis point, but it's you know like no, not not a lot going on here. But at some point in this this these movements, sentiment starts to shift, right? And and yeah. I always sort of keep saying to my clients, like I think you've got another good twelve months run at this, and after that, I can't predict because. We're not going to know that shift has happened until it's actually happened. You know, it's not, oh, the shift is coming in six months. We, we just don't know that. And one day we're all going to wake up and go, do you know, I just feel like the, the vibe of the market's changed. And um, sure, there might be some, some indicators, but, you know, you don't know until things start tightening up and investment decisions start changing. And yeah, uh, I agree. Yeah. In my, in, my, in my advice to our members in Collective 54 is don't get greedy. Yeah. You know, ask yourself two questions. What's the business worth to you? And what's the business worth? Yeah. And when someone's willing to pay you more than what the business is worth to you, sell it. If, if it's worth more to you to keep the business, then don't sell it. But that's the big distinction. What's it worth in the open market and what's it worth to you? And, then, and make a decision based on that. And, and, the, and many of the things that you were just talking about, Simon, are outside of our control. I mean, kind of the macro environment we can't control, right? So what the entrepreneur can control is build a great business that's attractive. And great businesses are always going to get bought. And that should, that should be our day-to-day -day focus. Yeah, ab absolutely agree. It's, um, you know, I, I, once again, you know, and you, you probably, well, you may have found the same thing, you know, speaking to so many business owners that I, I think... There needs to be a shift in the conversation and the thinking for a lot of business owners. Um, you know, my experience, and we've been running Exit Advisory now for, you know, what is it, about six years, and I still find that there's business owners out there who think the term exit is almost like a dirty word. It's, it's like almost a betrayal of their business. And it's, you know, and I keep saying to them that, you know, our business actually exists because fundamentally, we all exit our business one day, whether we like it or not. Right, right. And so, you know, it, everyone says death and taxes. Well, I'm going to say for business owners, it's exiting your business as well, right? So if you know this is going to happen, surely you want to put some thinking behind this and try to maximize the opportunity. Um, yeah. You know, and it's, I think by what you're doing with Collective 54 and certainly what we're trying to do at Exit Advisory and on this podcast is, is try to shift that conversation a little bit and get people... Get get out ahead of, of this issue, right? Get up the curve. Get find out what you need to find out, and start having to use the runway you've got yeah. to make the most of your you opportunity. Know, I, I agree. And if you ex exit correctly, and that's the big determining factor. There's a lot of bad exits. But if you ex exit correctly, it's a net positive for everybody. It's a net positive for the founder. 
your longtime loyal employees have a life-changing event. The new owners invest business, invest capital into your business and you grow, which makes you be able to serve your clients even better. You create more jobs. When the exit's done right, it's, it's nothing but a positive for everybody. And listen, everything has a start, middle, and end. Yeah. I mean, everything does, right? So you can control the end and make sure that it's in a positive end, or you can just sweep it under the rug and hope it never happens. But to your point, it's going to happen at some point, whether you like it or not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Greg, I, I've thoroughly enjoyed chatting to you here. And honestly, I think I could talk to you all day. God forbid if we actually had a beer in our hands, just we'd, we'd, uh, <laughs> we'd probably never get off the call. But uh, um, look, thank you so much for coming on the show and, and sharing your story and just so many insights here. I, I just know that this is going to be a, a huge episode. I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting it out. Super grateful. So, so appreciate you, you coming on and sharing your time with us. Thank you, Simon. It was my pleasure. Well, that's it for today, folks. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast. The amazing Greg Alexander has been very generous with his time. And I, if you're anything like me, you've gotten a lot of gold out of all the tips and, and insights that Greg's been able to share with us. Um, if you do want to reach out to Greg, you can find him on LinkedIn, Greg Alexander. Um, his primary role these days is the founder of Collective 54. And of course, he has written his book, The Boutique, How to Start, Scale, and sell a professional services firm. Um, you can also look up Collective 54 as well as Capital 54 via Google. Do me one little favor if you are listening and you do decide to reach out to Greg on LinkedIn. Um, he's open to connections, but please just put a little note in there and say that uh, you heard him being interviewed on the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast so that he's got a little bit of context and uh, I'm sure he will connect with you. So thanks for joining us today. And we look forward to having you on the next episode of the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast. The ultimate freedom is to own a company that is valuable, scalable, and saleable. Find out how you score on the eight factors that drive company value by completing the Value Builder questionnaire. Upon completion, we will send through your business scorecard so you can see how to maximize the value of your company. Just go to exitadvisory.com.au forward slash scorecard. The Buy, Grow, Sell podcast is brought to you by Exit Advisory Group a boutique M&A firm that helps business owners maximize company value and exit at the top of their game. To learn more about Exit Advisory Group, you can go to exitadvisory.com.au. And if you like what you've just heard, you can subscribe at buygrowsell.com to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Thank you for listening to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast with Simon Bedard. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit buygrowsell.com forward slash episodes. Simon is the founder and CEO of Exit Advisory Group, and you can follow him on LinkedIn.